Hello, my name is Michael Kuehl. And I'm Roger Burton West. And this is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, the third in the series, in which we talk about role-playing games of various genres and types, and offer our collected wisdom to the universe out there. Has the universe been in touch with us yet? Well, some, some of it has. All right, well, let me know what they're saying. We may need more matter. After our initial forays into uh, the weirdness of modern horror and the even weirder stuff of uh, the transhuman future, we're going back to basics this week, in fact, back to the very beginnings of uh, role-playing games. It's still true, I think, for over 80% of the uh, role-playing uh, hobby, and it was certainly true when we started, that you start by playing a game which you go down in a hole in the ground, which is filled with monsters, who have lots of stuff that you want to take, and you smite them by sword and by spell, and you come back up and uh, get better as you go along. And it all dates back to the early 1970s, when a bunch of war gamers in Wisconsin decided that they were uh, going to try something new. A game in which you're not a general, but in which you are a single warrior, or uh, something like that, in a fantasy world, going down into the aforementioned hole in the ground, the first one being Greyhawk Castle, run by Dave Arnson. One should point out, perhaps, that these were miniatures games. There weren't a, you couldn't get miniatures for dragons and orcs and stuff like that. They just didn't exist. They had the rules, um, chainmail, which they then adapted to what would, in other circumstances, be a squad-level, um, one-figure-equals-one-person gaming event, but you were a team of people, and rather than having rifles and the radios, you had swords and spells, and you went down in a hole in the ground, and you did a common effort to smite the things which were A, evil, and B, had lots of treasure. And this worked. It still works to a great degree, and people are still very fond of this way of role-playing. We're going to examine some of the reasons why, and some of the ways that people are using modern resources to play a very old-fashioned sort of a game. I, I think one should consider that, at least for gamers like us who are, who are old enough to experience this the first time round, oh there is nostalgia involved, and one should not underrate nostalgia. I think we should uh, mention, in light of nostalgia, the fact that People are publishing a lot of games which are essentially copies of the bit of D&D they remember and enjoyed. Yep, and we'll go into those in a little more detail a uh, little later on. People who weren't around the first time may be wondering what all the fuss was about. Uh, computer games, of course, were very much built on the early concepts of D&D, as in it basically you're going out and fighting things and getting tougher as a result of fighting them. Yeah instead of getting dead or old or permanently injured, as uh, would happen in a rational universe, you smite some of that which does not destroy us and makes us stronger. Except oxygen deterioration. Yeah, that makes us dumber. But you know, the computer games took this idea and then went off largely on their own thing, and now some of that's coming back in. You've got something like World of Warcraft, say, mm. where people are getting at least some of the fun of interacting with other players, but what they don't get is a human GM who can say, hmm, you did something unexpected, but that's a good idea, let's see if it works. Yeah. As opposed to a computer that just says, oh well, I have no idea what that is, it doesn't work. Eh, eh. 
you you attempt to punch that thing and it, nothing happens. It's very frustrating. I think part of the appeal also is uh, simplicity in rules. I and mean, yes, there mm. are completely freeform games, but if you don't want to go that far, these are pretty basic rule sets. And basic D and D was sixty four pages, I think. Well, I got to disagree. My problem and the reason I haven't played D and D for a long time was that it was simple, but it wasn't simple enough. That's some strange assumptions behind it. Monsters and people were separate things. They were built in different ways. They had different rules um, for them. And I remember the joy and gladness I found when I first looked at RuneQuest and realised that dragon over there has strength the way I have strength. It has intelligence the way I have intelligence. It has to hit chance the way I have a to hit chance. It has a lot more of them than I have, but we're built in the same sort of way. We're creatures of the same universe. I, I think it would be fair to say that particularly the early D&D uh, &D rules weren't, weren't so much explicitly designed as accreted. You start off with, with a mm. core system of hitting things and doing them damage. Uh, but then things like strong people doing stuff that needs strength is one subsystem that is yeah. completely unlike everything else. Um, thieves picking locks is another subsystem that's completely unlike anything else. There are yeah. lots and lots of special case rules. So in looking at it in terms of modern games, it, it comes out a lot more complicated than the page count would, would account for. Yeah. And uh, but, and for some reason, if you were a fighter, you couldn't pick up the lockpicks and give it a try when the thief was lying dead on the floor. And I never really understood that. I left D&D &D in 1979. The last thing I purchased, I think, was the AD&D &D, uh, DM's Guide. And I read it, and I never got to use it because I was moving on to other things. But people did. People had wonderful experiences with... Uh, with these games, and we should probably, in the next section, ask why exactly. Well, so, some of this, I think, is uh, simplicity of setting. There, there's a line from Goodman Games called Dungeon Crawl Classics, mm -hmm. which are unabashed adventures of this type. Uh, that Their blurb is, the, we don't waste your time with long-winded speeches, weird campaign settings, or NPCs who aren't meant to be killed. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what you're getting. You, you're not going to have to worry too much about complicated things. Maybe you've had a hard day at work, you want a nice simple game where you go down a hole in the ground and kill stuff. Yeah, the the thing is, from a both from a player's point of view and from a GM's point of view, the dungeon crawl is a godsend because it's focused. The players have a limited set of options, corridors they can go down, stairs they can go up and down, doors they can kick open. And the GM has a set of tools which allows them to challenge the players. He has everything pre-set up, and he can pretty much be certain what the players are going to face within the limited set of choices that they've got. And the players have a set of tasks which are thrown at them, hopefully fast enough by the GM to make it exciting and give them a sense of tension. But they know who their friends are, mostly, and who's on what side, and they don't have to worry about too many complicated things. I'd say that um, it's quite a lot easier on the GM than, oh, let's say, a campaign in a world which actually has a functioning society, and there are, there are people who are going to care about what the PCs do and react differently to them mm. because of what they've done. Well, it's, it's a dungeon. Everything, everything that's in there hates PCs. You're, yeah, even if somewhere back in, in, in civilization or what passes for it, back in the town you've come from, there is a society... Out here, you're outside, you're out beyond the borders, you're outside uh, the civilised rules, 
and people can um, do things a simple way and violence is always an option. Usually the best option. Usually the only option, to be honest. Uh, there were never any complicated social interaction. You cannot imagine D&D social engineering as a supplement. One of the things that appeals about a simple system, I think, is that um, if you don't have rules for, say, personalities, you can just run whatever personality you like. You don't have to mm. worry about whether you're going to get extra points from being manic depressive or whether you're going to get fewer points from being very brave. You can just be that. Yeah, I'm running a, a campaign of RuneQuest 3 at the moment. Um, RuneQuest, though it's a step beyond D&D in that it has a social system built into the core rules, the cults and the, and the gods and all that. Nonetheless, the personality of the pl of the player character isn't described in the rules. It isn't dictated in the rules. He has stats and skills, basically. Yeah. And my uh, current campaign, I have a very ugly, very stupid warrior, uh, Humacti, worshipper of the god of death, um, who is the party's chief combat wombat and charges towards the front. And the player is playing him from the uh, the stats and the descriptions as a big, stupid, violent person who rushes to the front bravely. And this is all very well and good as long as the players are well and good and have a focus on what they think their per their personality, their character is. You don't need the support if the players are going to do it anyway, but sometimes I suspect I've never had the sort of abusive players you've heard about for very long. The ones who take the advantage of there not being any rules to take advantage of the other players and of the GM. But I do suspect they happen with D&D. Describe your character's personality in one word. Ambidextrous. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly looking at something like the classic D&D, really before the major world supplements came out, uh, and even to some extent after that, the, the worlds are generally pretty skeletal. Um, I think one of the appeals, appeals there is that they are. You don't have to read a huge atlas of which nation is where and what they're like. You mm. can say, right, my, my fighter is a hairy barbarian from the north. Yeah. It's interesting to note that uh, the second major product of TSR was Empire of the Petal Throne, which is way, way the opposite. <laughs> But um, to, to the point where I seem to remember it's recommended that new players start off oh, as, as hairy barbarians from the south. Oh, yeah, I remember. Who know nothing about this social system so that they can learn it as the players do. Yeah. So, in our efforts to discover the roots of the dungeon delving revival, we decided to go back to the origins of the hobby and to sound out one of the survivors from the earliest group to experience what was to become Dungeons and Dragons. We are very pleased to welcome to our little podcast Mike Mornard, also known in various places in the net as Old Geezer. Mike, yep. hello. Hi. And for those of you who are on ODD 74 boards, I'm known there as Gronin of Simmeria. <laughs> I'm not going to ask. We may get there. Okay. Um, thanks for uh, well, asking for the interview. Mike, welcome to uh, Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. You were one of the very first people to experience Dave Arnson's great new idea. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, I was living in Lake Geneva at the time. I was part of the Lake Geneva Wargaming Society, and it would have been sometime late summer of 72. After a miniatures game, we were standing outside of Don Kay's garage, uh, Rob Kuntz, Don Kay, and me, 
And Rob said, Gary's got this great new game called Greyhawk. You're a bunch of guys exploring an old abandoned castle full of monsters and treasures and stuff. And that was the lead in. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, when I went up to Minneapolis for college, yeah. I wound up playing in Dave's group of his original Blackmore players. Yeah. It was still early enough to the beginning that... Long, long before anybody saw the three little booklets. But... Uh... I, yeah, I hit Minneapolis just before publication of the three little booklets. So there was um, Chainmail had been published. Right. And that was the basis for going on to creating Dungeons & Dragons. More or less. You know, if you've read about the accounts of Dave Wesley's Bronstein games... I have, yeah. Chainmail was one of the influences. You know, at, at some point somewhere in an article and God alone knows where at this point Dave Arneson said he was tired of straight medieval miniatures battles so he mm -hmm. grabbed a Godzilla model from some place and put it on the table and said it's a dragon yeah. and things just sort of growed from there as the saying goes we were all war gamers war gaming was still a small hobby you could go to Gen Con and you could know all 250 people who were there. And if you didn't, if you hadn't met them in person, you'd read their column in the, their article or their letter in the general magazine from Avalon Hill. Yeah. Or you corresponded with them in the International Federation of War Gamers, all 200 of them. And at that time, at least, it was also a very do-it-yourself hobby. Um, you know, Dave uh -huh. Arneson wrote at least a couple different Napoleonic's land battle games. And, mm -hmm. you know, Chainmail got published because it was a good enough set of rules that enough people liked it that it's like, hey, we yeah. can actually pay for our printing costs, <laughs> which which was about how you did things. It's, you know, OK, we we have like. 20 guaranteed sales at two and a half dollars each that's fifty dollars how yeah. many copies will the printer print for fifty dollars that's our print run it's still well it is, still is yeah. a bit like that it's sort of gone back end. that way yeah because people are publishing their small games and taking what yeah, profit if, they can if the internet and the web had been around in 1969 chain mail would be a pdf on the lake geneva Tactical Studies Association website. And the yeah. world would be a vastly different place. <laughs> so, you got started. Um, how old were you at that time? You said pre college. Yeah, 16. You said. When I started in miniatures gaming, and about either just before or just after I turned 17, I started playing Greyhawk, as we called it at the time. How old was the average of the group? Uh, let's see. Three of us were in high school, you know, 15, 16, 17. A uh, lot of mid-20s. And Gary and Don Kay were in their mid-30s. Mm -hmm. So predominantly, the group clustered in the mid to late 20s. All right. What was the thing that grabbed you from the start? Well, I'd been, I'd been playing miniatures war games. And I... You know, we went for that first adventure in Greyhawk Castle, and it was like it, it was sort of like a miniatures war game, but sort of not, and sort of like I'd been reading Baffert and the Mauser and Conan and Lord of the Rings, sort of like 
well, you're in that store, except you get to do what you want, but sort of not. And it's like, I wasn't 100% sure what it is we were actually doing, but it sure was neat. Mm -hmm. What's what's the thing you remember most about the the very first adventure? Sadly, very little. You know, that was 40 years ago now. And we were just a bunch of people playing games. And the the other thing, mm-hmm. simultaneously, we were playing chainmail battles, we were playing tractics battles in World War II, you know, Don't Give Up the Ship, Napoleonic Sale, Civil War Land Battles, Dungeons and Dragons, Boot Hill, Terry Kuntz had a Robin Hood game he was testing. So, you know, D&D was one of a wide selection of games that we were playing, or Greyhawk, as we called it. It was, it was just yeah. another game. I do remember, actually, uh-huh. that's really significant, is that the first session I ever played, there was a woman playing. Ah, yeah. So, Round of applause. Was she, was she a girlfriend um, or a, a gamer? Both. both. She, she both. got started as... She was the sister of the friend of mine who introduced me to miniatures gaming. And she was her boyfriend was also a member of the association, but by the time she really hooked into playing Greyhawk, you know, in that first session she was I remember she was playing an elf, and she may already have been up to Hero Warlock, which is as high in an I don't know if she had gotten her elf all that distance, but had obviously played more than once. The elf was already a yeah. fairly useful and well-experienced character. I get the feeling, reading the rules and some of the early accounts, that it was very much a, a game in which you were a squad of people working together. You were, the early rules mentioned caught the caller, or, or sometimes the party leader, who is that you go around the table and say, what's everybody doing? And then you report to the GM, rather than... Right. players sticking their oar in. Right. And there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it's, it was a hidden map game. Yeah. The referee had the map, and you were exploring. And only one person can have their pencil on the map at one time True. if you're going to do anything useful. So when you come to an intersection, there's a certain logic in you know the person who's drawing the map makes the guiding decisions and that's not to say that they're you know the rest of us are watching because there's nothing like having your character's life on the line to focus your attention <laughs> on the map <laughs> and you put sato voce suggestions or comments like you know there's an nest of giant spiders over there or nobody's been in this direction before mm-hmm. but there's also an element of simulation in that if you sat at the table and started having a rhubarb over which way you were going to go, Gary assumed that, yeah, your characters are standing down in the dungeon in the middle of a four-way intersection having a this loud... perfectly reasonable point of view, yes. Which, you know, if I were Phil Foglio, I would draw a cartoon of this big hairy arm coming over your shoulder, pointing at the map and saying, no, no, the death, of, the gorge of eternal death is right there, ten feet behind where you're standing now. <laughs> so... You know, that was the other reason for having a caller. Mm. And when a combat situation evolved, most of us were experienced miniatures gamers. Uh-huh. So 
we knew what we were going to do and we gave our instructions one as you say one by one but you know very you know very brief terse the four fighters in plate armor are going to anchor our flanks here and here to protect the wizard mm-hmm. and then us four fighters are done and then the wizard says what he or she is going to do and it's very much you know we're a close order infantry squad we have practiced and rehearsed this you know yeah and you had to and you treated it like a military problem well we were all war gamers mm-hmm. and well, this is that yeah yeah you know we looked at it as a somewhat different form of war game but still a war game and tactics were the same sort of tactics that we used on the tabletop it was like um squad leader uh, if you're thinking of the avalon hill game squad leader yeah you're fighting the individual members of a squad one by one and trying to trying to survive was it as deadly in practice as the rules seem to imply well by the time i started playing there were already some fourth and fifth level characters in the group mm-hmm. and okay rob Kunz was one of the first and considering how canny he is probably not but we weren't afraid to run we weren't afraid to say this is nuts we're going to die if we go in there you know yeah. he who fights and runs away gets a dozen friends another day yeah <laughs> speaking of my uh, speaking of which is nicely my next question which was um the the, the classic party just the pcs uh, pcs plus henchmen or a single pc plus henchmen because uh we've heard it described all three ways were you going in there with just the however many people the characters of just how many people were around the table were there was there backup normally when we played usually there would be three to five players and the group size would be seven to nine so yes there would always be henchmen all right so well i i shouldn't say Oh, there would usually be henchmen. Uh-huh. I had my main character was a fighter, but I also started a magic user just to see if I liked it. And he had exceptionally bad luck. And after the fifth or sixth expedition where I'd hire a bunch of men at arms and nobody came back from me but me, I couldn't hire a man at arms for love nor money. <laughs> Word had gotten around. This guy, you know forget it yeah so you know and this is sort of you know a flip to those who you know first level magic users are no fun i went down into somehow my first level magic user had discovered an entry to the third level of greyhawk dungeon Hmm. i went down there with my magic user alone Mm -hmm. with a torch a dagger three hit points and a charm person spell And through a combination of luck and care and very cautious playing, came out just shy of third level. Mm -hmm. Because I got trapped in a dead-end corridor and a wandering monster came along and it was a fifth-level fighter. And I happened to have a charm person spell. Yeah, that's what it's there for. And... I spent, I remember vividly, I spent something like 20 minutes of real time trying to decide, do I take Charm Person or do I take Sleep? Because I've got one first level spell and that's it. Yeah. 
And I finally decided since it was the third level, the odds of running into orcs or goblins was a little less. And I consider that a good thing. Yeah. yeah. I I enjoyed that sort of strategic planning and the fact that the choice was that important. Yes. Role gaming is all about choices, about the choices you make. That, that that's that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. That's what makes it makes it fun. You've said that the very looseness of the rules made it easy to introduce new elements. I mean, you said Dave Hansen picked up a, a Godzilla and said that's that's a dragon. Yeah. Can you can you apart from that, can you think of any examples as to when things were just brought in ad hoc because it seemed like a good idea at the time? Well, we didn't see a printed copy of the rules for something like the first year and a half. No. Gary was the only person who had the rules. So we have no way of telling what... Now, because I know Gary, because I know the, the way he played with him, he would write up the stats on something before he brought it in. Yeah. But he was introducing new stuff all the time. The first time we ran into an invisible stalker, he didn't call it that. All we know is that suddenly something is hitting us and we can't see anything. Yeah. And we're flailing around madly at a minus four, trying to hit something we can't see while avoiding hitting our mates. Mm. And a couple of us actually hit it three or four times. And then, you know, we heard it shuffle off into the darkness. But we're, afterwards, we're all standing there going, the holy hell was that? So, you know, we didn't have the rules, so everything was new. Yeah. The, the the first time we found out that there is such a thing as a bag of devouring, it did not end well. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm actually going to be writing that up for my the whole story yeah. for my yeah. Kickstarter. And my brother... My older brother still refers to it all these years later as the night we fed Ernie to the monster. <laughs> you're writing, um, if, I, uh, if I can give you a free commercial, you're writing um, an account of the, uh, of the early days and hoping to get it financed on Kickstarter. Right. I understand. I've, I've, when I was living in New York, um, I ran a game for a while for, among other people, Tavis from Autark Games. And he also blogs, The Mule Abides is the name of his blog. Mm -hmm. And Autark has done a couple Kickstarters and he's got experience that I don't. So, you know, we're talking, we're still figuring that out. But part of it is I want the manuscript, not necessarily the illustrations and the layout, but at least the raw PDF mm -hmm. pretty much done before I start the Kickstarter, yeah. because even if I don't have the full product ready to deliver, if I at least have the PDF version mm -hmm. more or less ready, you know, it's easier to, you know, people feel like they're getting something. All right. And, kick, you know, Kickstarter, you're taking a chance, but well, you mitigate that at least a little. Well, let, let, let me know when it uh, when, when you're starting to kick it. Oh, I we'll, certainly we'll, shall. We will we'll, we'll, we'll spread the good word as much as we can. You'll know when it's out there, and the the title of it is "We Made Up Some Shit We Thought Would Be Fun." <laughs> okay, moving moving on. Um, in the early days, how much this is this is about role playing, playing part. How much characterization 
was there? How much did a player create a, a character for for his piece in the world, if you like? like? Um, we might have a sentence or two, but it didn't really affect play much. You know, I mentioned my character's name was Gronin of Cimmeria, mm. which is an obvious yeah, yeah. parody. And the thing is, when you know, when Gary had characters named Yurag and Zagyig, and henchmen named Sigby Digbigson and Rigby Bigbison, and Rob Kunz had a stage named Herb. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm All right. Deep seriousness, not talking about it. Yeah, well, and it's, again, this is an old war game tradition where you might be refighting the Battle of Trafalgar mm. and you're, you're playing to the best of your skill. You're doing as well as you can, but the French are commanded by Le Comte d'Escargot and, you know, the British are commanded by Commodore General Sir Hugh Jars. Yeah, all right. But you're still playing as hard as you can. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, theoretically, my character was a barbarian. What did that mean? That meant that if I wanted to, I would say, by Krom. Mm. Yeah, and that's about as far as it went. Okay. Uh, we did role play more in the sense of, okay, now negotiate. Yeah. yeah I remember one, one incident, you know, again, trapped in a dead-end corridor by a chimera hmm. and ernie uh, his character was neutral so he spoke he spoke law neutral and chaos hmm. and in the chaotic tongue ernie says uh good day to you your evilness and gary goes huh? what do you mean good do i look good to you <laughs> and ernie goes um 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 bad day to you your evilness that's better i mean that's worse i mean <laughs> And on the one hand, it's kind of silly, but on the other hand, try having a conversation sometime where all the value words are reversed. Yeah. It, it's not as easy as it sounds. No, it's not. So we did a lot of very impromptu, very ad hoc role playing, but it was the player, you know, in keeping with the notion of you're testing player skill, not character skill, yeah. it's yeah. the player doing the negotiating. Yeah. Because there weren't any mechanics for um, your diplomacy skill or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, Dave Arnson, uh, from the accounts of Bronstein that I've, I've, I've read, seems to have been um, very cunning as a, as a, as a role player. And, uh, very, very willing to uh, take advantage of that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, the... What about the end game? The, when the when you've reached 10th level, when you are powerful as the game is going to get, did that actually get played out when you're, when you're going to become a lord and, and get moving to that castle over there? Right. I moved from Lake Geneva to Minneapolis just after my character hit 9th level. Yeah. And then once I got to Minneapolis, I played a few times with Dave, but then I joined the university gaming club, and that character sort of got set aside, so... But, for instance, Rob Kuntz, Robilar, hmm. hit 14th level. Yeah. And he had a castle, and it was a, he had retainers, and he controlled a major section of the land. 
he had a place on the Council of Eight in the city of Greyhawk. So that, yes, you know, at least, and and uh, Dave Arneson did the same thing. You know, Greg Swenson's character, Swenny the Great, King of All Good. Yeah, he became the king. So, yeah. you know, there was definitely, yes, when you got to that level, you got your stronghold, you became one of the powers of the world. Was that retirement or was it playing on a different level? It, it was playing on a different level. Gary, Dave, Rob, a bunch of the other players had all been in the Castle and Crusade Society. Yeah. And Greyhawk and Blackmore were both placed on the map originally of the great kingdom of the Castle and Crusade Society. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, castles are meant to be sieged. <laughs> so you, you've, you've just moved into a different aspect of the game is all. Yeah. You still play D&D. You're still, if I, if I have the reports right, you still play D&D with the original rules. Have you, are, you're not interested in the games that came after? You've tried them and been unimpressed? Or is it sticking to what you know? A couple different things going on. Um, as I mentioned, I was a member of the University Gaming Club, the University of Minnesota, from about 1973 to about 85 or 86. Mm-hmm. And for most of that time, it probably had 40 to 50 active members. Yeah. So somebody tried just about anything. Yeah. And, you know, one, I did try a lot of different things. Maybe not some of the more modern games, but that leads me to number two. Since about 1976 or 1977, I've been and still am a proponent of the notion that the actual game system is about the least important thing in the mix. Uh-huh. That you know, if it's an interesting setting and a bunch of people, a bunch of players, including the referee, who have more or less the same vision, you're going to have a good game. Yeah. Once in a while, you know, once in a while you hit something out on one or the other tail of the bell curve. Mm. Like uh, one of my friends is really, really big on comic book superheroes. Yeah. And in the late 70s, there were some appallingly bad superhero games out there. I seem to recall some of them, yeah. And I'm not going to, there's even one of them, we read it and like, where? there's no game here. So, you know, big salute to Hero Games in 1981 or 82 when Champions came out. That is one of the cases where the system is a brilliant expression of exactly what Silver Age, four colors, bright spandex, leotard superheroes are all about. Yeah. Greg Stafford, Pendragon, is a piece of art. Not only the traits and passions, but even the very combat system, how usually two knights will just wail away on each other for hours. But every once in a while, there's going to be a chance Mm -hmm. that somebody gets a lucky critical and ends the fight, which perfectly matches what Mallory describes. So once in a while, for good or for ill, the system is amazing but most of the time you're in that big center part where the system doesn't really matter much i i could run the game i'm running in 
fantasy trip. You know, the old Melee Wizard says, I could run it in Fantasy Hero. Um, if I learned one of the newer incarnations of the rules, I'm sure I could run it in that. You know, the rules don't really matter that much. Well, taking up from that, you said that if the GM and the players have a link vision and know what they're agreed on what it's about, um, the system doesn't matter. The the thing I envy you most of um, is not... Is, forgive me for saying this, is not the, the early involvement with D&D, but the fact you got to play for so many years with Professor Barker in in the Empire of the Metal Throne in his regular Tekken world game. I'm sure there are people across the world who are deeply envious of you for that. And Professor Barker, as I understand it, continued to use either something like D&D or um, not very many rules at all uh, to run his games. Well, we, yeah. I actually, I mean, we never actually pressed the point on him, but except for combat, and even sometimes for combat, you know, it was mostly like Phil rolls the dice and just decides on how he wants things to go. <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, that's, that is very much the spirit that the original D&D rules were written in. Mm -hmm. you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, Gary was the only one with the set of the rules, they're designed simply as a minimalistic framework for the referee. You know, I have this world I've created. I want to let people explore it. What are the things I want to remember? Because I don't want to. You know, I don't want to have to adjudicate every combat, mm -hmm. even though I could. So we'll do this little combat system, just so I don't have to remember how combat works, sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah, you know, Phil. The, I think possibly the most fun I ever had on TechML was the night we'd actually ended a previous session at a fairly, you know, we were in town or something, and we hopped into one of the tubeway cars, the round underground high-speed transit, Yeah. went over to the destination dial, gave it a spin, closed our eyes, and pushed the button. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Phil, you know, we're going to play tourist. And, and if you've ever read the book Flame Song, yeah. when the Sioux catch one of the tubeway cars with a net, that happened to us. Ah. So it, it, you were asking for it, weren't you? Well, yeah, and we, and we knew. You know, it just, there was a chance. You know, there was a, at least once where the thing suddenly stops and the view screen shows us a collapsed tunnel. And Phil said plainly, you, know, you understand there is a chance that the fail safes might not work. Mm. And it's like, yeah, we're heroes. I th actually, I think that's a that's a holdover from a wargamer's attitude also. And I'm not I'm not pretending that, you know, being a wargamer makes you manly or macho because you're a bunch of middle aged guys pushing around little plastic tanks. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. it's about as far from manly as you can get and still have a Y chromosome. But when you're a war gamer, you learn you're going to lose units. Mm -hmm. you know, it just you can't win without exposing your troops to danger. Yeah. And if you expose your troops to danger, you're going to lose some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so that is indeed is that. And and back to game systems when it takes you 5 minutes to generate a new character, I think it's a lot easier to swallow. Yeah. Uh, it's you know champions works well because in 
Silver Age spandex superheroes, nobody ever dies. Well, except when they need to boost the sales. Well, yeah, I mean, except, but, you know, Spider-Man's not going to die. You know, Batman's not going to die, etc. You may get pounded to a pulp, but you don't have to go through the lengthy champion's character generation system again. True. Well, one last thing, if I may, and thank you for all that you said here today. Have you noticed the what's called the retro clone movement? The people who are keeping in print and bringing out versions of all the various stages of D&D's development, except the one that's currently being published by um, Wizards of the Coast. How does that strike you as a, as a phenomenon? Well, like everything, it has its pluses and minuses. And that's, that's how I met Tavis, hmm. because the Adventure Conqueror King folks have a big interest in that. And, you know, part of the fun was Tavis saying, okay, we had figured this part out pretty accurately. This part, <laughs> we had no clue. Um, there are, mo for the most part, I think it's, you know, oh, great. Nothing wrong with it. Let, you know, there's room enough for every kind of game. Yeah. I think it's nice that people, at least some people are realizing, later editions of Dungeons and Dragons are different, but that doesn't mean they're better. Mm hmm you know, other people like them better, but that's a matter of taste, not absolute quality. But, you know, sometimes with all respect to these guys, I think they're overthinking some of the stuff. I mean, that's one reason I'm calling the Kickstarter. We made up some shit we thought would be fun. Yeah. I saw this long discussion about where did the cleric come from in D&D? I'll bite. Yeah, one of Dave's players was a vampire, and he was rolling over everything and i said well you know there should be one of the rules of old time war game design is that for every feature there's got to be a counter for every tactic there has to be an answer yeah for every weapon that has to be a defense yeah so it's like okay what do we do with this vampire oh maybe we should do it i mean and he he was straight out of the christopher lee peter cushing movies uh -huh. opera tape and all you know none of this deep exploration of the and no all right. It's All right. Christopher Lee in an opera cloak, okay? Well, uh, the obvious answer is Peter Cushing. So they started with the vampire hunter character, but then, well, you know, some healing abilities would be nice too. Okay, and, you know, there's the priest. And so they decide after a few times to change the name from priest to cleric. Yeah. Hey, Presto, we made up some shit we thought would be fun. Mike Monarch, Ogiza, thank you very much. Oh, you're quite welcome. Okay, well, the obvious approach, if you want to have a game like this, well, what about actual D&D? For my taste, I realise it's hugely successful, so this is not a majority viewpoint that I'm going to espouse here, but for me it's terribly complicated. Mm. Um, okay, AD&D, when it came out, had, had three books, Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and Monster Manual, and that was uh, 482 pages. D&D 4th edition, same three books, is 834 pages, and the player's handbook is two and a half times as long. Yes, it's very slick game design, but there's, it feels to me awfully mechanised. Uh, you know, e everything has a game mechanic effect, everything happens on the combat grid, yeah. you, you have powers that... I, I understand this is to some extent taken from um, computer games, which is fair enough, but you, you have a power that's simply described as 
you can, you can force one of your foes to attack a particular person in your party as opposed to the one you wanted to attack. Yeah. Now, I, I can think of various justifications for why that might happen in-game, but there isn't an in-game justification. There's just, oh, well, you can make this happen. You've got the effect. You've got no flavour to it. Yeah. Yeah, the, it's the point... It breaks down at the point where I don't care about the uh, modelling the world. I just want cool stuff. And yeah. that was always a bit of a problem with D&D. There are people who still play first edition D&D. The, the, the three books and maybe... Greyhawk and Blackmore, and they won't go so far as uh, admitting the existence of whatever it was called, Eldritch... Eldritch Wizardry. Eldritch Wizardry, yes. And they're, they're perfectly happy with that. I find that a little strange, to be honest. Well, the, the next option, if you don't want a modern D&D, is um, it would be nice to be able to try the old systems. Hmm. Ah, uh, but of course they're out of print. Fortunately, there are retro clones. Because, peculiarly under copyright law, you can't copyright a system, just the words describing it, and there are a lot of words out there. So if you're a reasonably competent author, you can recreate whatever edition of D&D you feel like by essentially rewriting it. Yeah. Now, I... we're going to put a link to the various D&D versions that uh, these uh, things come from, but there seem to be basically three camps that appeal. The, um, the very early th uh, three books uh, that I think you were mentioning, the Gygax and Arneson. In the early 80s in the UK, there was the Basic and Expert set, which mm. kicked, kicked off, I think, a lot of, lot of gaming in the UK because they got into actual shops as opposed to uh, just games shops. Yeah. Uh, I, I got my copy of the Basic set in John Lewis. Yeah, I, I, a lot of people say who say, "Oh, I, I, I was with D and D from the beginning." Mean that uh, that box, that think of that box set. The mo that's Mold Bay. Uh, yes. Okay. And then there's a D and D, mm. which has come, came out a bit earlier, but didn't really get outside game shops. I think at least for a while. Yeah, it was a big uh, uh, and uh, for the time very expensive investment. The the three hardback books I seem to recall. Yeah. Uh, so those three seem to be the. Um, three editions that people seem to favour when they're writing retro clone systems. Some of the clones are able to impersonate any of these, some of them are just focused on a specific one. Mm. And they don't seem to talk about Unearthed Arcana and the Dungeoneer Survival Guide and stuff that made the games a bit more complicated. Presumably because if you want to go for the simple stuff, you just go for the yeah. original simple stuff. And there's, there's Osric, there's Labyrinth Lords, there are various other systems we'll, we'll put in the show notes. Uh, most of them are free as PDF, or at least cheap, and similarly cheap in print, so mm. they're available. If that's what you want, they're very readily available. Why don't we want them? Well, as I say, I estimate a game system by two things. The amount of support for what I want to do that's built into it, and the ease with which I can make up a new rule that's consistent with what's already there. And... D&D &D never did that for me. I never quite understood. I'm not much of a rules hacker my, myself. Um, I'll never write my own system. Oh, good grief, that feels like I'm tempting fate. I've already written one. Shush. But I want something which I can, I can use as is and add to easily. And that was never the case with any of the versions of D&D. I never understood how it all fitted together. Which is why RuneQuest was such a, a major revelation. Well, to I me. think to some extent it doesn't really fit together. The uh, approach to fitting on a new rule was invent an entirely new mechanic. Yeah, there was a, a bit on the back of, I think it was, a Rollmaster uh, 
supplement, one of the various bits of Royal Master, which advertised this supplement as, and 22 new character classes, and that's at the point at which I put it back on the shelf and resolved never to have anything to do <laughs> with the, the system again, because it's not a, a system whose idea of fun is more complication does not necessarily appeal to me. More cool stuff, yes, more cool ideas, but complication is, I have enough. Most of the additional Rollmaster character classes ended up being, we will shuffle the skill costs around slightly and have some new cool spell lists. Oh, joy. The new cool spell lists are quite fun, but you know, it's more complication than one needs. I'll tell you what strikes me about the whole retro clan thing. You know, speaking as an aged gentleman, that there is a moment in the past where, which you think of as your music. Just uh, as the golden age of science fiction is 12. Yeah, and the golden age of music is between 14 and 16, I'd say, where you hear the things that uh, that get your blood running first. The, there is, people are imprinted, to a certain extent, on the first things that they really enjoyed about the hobby. Yeah. And and I will note um, that I'm not condemning people for this, because, as I say, I'm currently running RuneQuest, and I'm going through all the old RuneQuest 3 and RuneQuest 2 material that I've got and trying to relive my youth. But it is a peculiar thing. There do seem to be great, great arguments over whether, whether a retro clone should just be an exact duplicate of the original game mechanics, or whether you should actually allow innovation. Um, if, if it's the former, then you can't really do something terribly original because somebody's done it already. Yeah. For example, okay. D&D on the class. Yeah. The lower it is, the harder it is to hit you. There is no particularly good reason for this, so some, some systems invert it. And people argue that, no, that's changing the game, it shouldn't be allowed. And some of them even have skill systems. But to me, if, you, if you're going to have a skill system, if you're going to um, try to make it into a, into a more modern style of game rather than just organising the rules better, let's learn the lessons of 30-plus years of game development and have, a, and have an actual modern game. Well, true. I hope we're not coming off of system snobs or anything in this. But I think my reaction to, to D&D, once I, once I absorbed it, and once I've been doing it and trying out the other early games was this is a wonderful idea but it isn't terribly well executed and hence the history of modern gaming it's the version one it produced a bunch of original ideas mm. um and was laboring under the burden of ha having it's actually been inventing these ideas I, I i still contend that um role-playing was actually invented accidentally because but when the wargamers who were going through the dungeons started using funny voices for their characters, I yeah, it, before that it was it was a war game. You know, you've got your resource. Yeah, it's got this much strength, this much resistance to damage, and so on. After that, it's actually I care about this particular guy, not just because of whether I'm going to win or lose the game. Well, I think somebody said it's a famous quote, and I I can't remember who said it that role role playing started when somebody in a D and D game said, "Well, I wouldn't do this, but my character would." Yep. And once that started, oh, the trouble it starts. <laughs> okay, so if, if we are going to look at modern games, we've got we've got two fairly different ones to look at. GURPS Dungeon Fantasy, which is a number of PDF booklets from Steve Jackson Games, and Dungeon World, which is... Which is a clone, well, no, which is a hack, I think is the right word, of Apocalypse World. And is very different indeed, but quite fun. Let's start with Dungeon Fantasy, which tells you what it does in the title. Yeah, uh, it's a series of supplements to GURPS, 
you do need the GURPS basic rules, but you won't end up using all of them. Uh, I think it's up to 15 booklets now, but you really only need the first two, which are the first one for defining your characters and the second one for things that will happen to your characters. Monsters, traps, treasure, that sort of thing. It's clearly informed by D&D, but not only by D&D, it does have some computer game influences as well. You've got, uh, I think, 11. They're not, strictly speaking, character classes, but they work like that in the basic they're, they're, Well, they're templates. They're... Yeah, you, you can tweak them if you want to, but if you just want a character in a hurry, uh, you can slap something together in five minutes. Mm. They're, uh, they're fairly powerful for... Um, compared with the, with the advised starting points of 150 characters for Heroic, it's 250 points. Uh, 250 pointers, and since they're also fairly tightly focused, there's generally one thing that they are really pretty damn good at. Uh, in the case of the uh, uh, knight, for example, that is producing damage. Mm. And the wizards tend to be specialised by, uh, by by the spell classes that they're good at. Reason start yep. though. It, 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 it's, not a, it's not a requirement. It, it, everything is potentially flexible, but when you're, when you're starting the game, getting, getting set up quickly so that you can get on with playing, that, that's certainly the direction that you're channeled in. I think one of the strengths of it is that GURPS started out by modelling man-to-man combat. That, that was the first re- release, um, uh, how to have fighters and have them fight each other. And it goes back to the, the TFT, the, the fantasy trip, which was yep. the precursor to GURPS, where that models solidly the realistic effects of two people with swords and shields and some armour whacking at each other. And everything else was built up on top of that. Yeah, I'm not not quite in the usual um, run, run of these things. I, I quite like starting with a realistic system and then layering heroic stuff on top of it. So you say, yes, n- normal people, you take a sword to the gut, you're going to die, but you are heroes and you are not. Mm. As opposed to, well, you know, everybody's got hit points. I think, I, well, I think it's, it's one of the strengths. It reintroduces the, the element of the combat team going down, down the dungeon very neatly. And it also layers on top of GURPS's wide open um, nature, the what's the word the motifs that inherits from D and D. For instance, it's got strong niche protection between the, um, the wizard and the cleric. The cleric can do he- healing, and the wizard can't, which is not the case in base base GURPS. Yeah, I think it's a, th- a thing we've uh, said before, even on this podcast, that one of the problems with GURPS is there's all this stuff. Yeah, and there is the temptation to use all this stuff. And on the other hand, if you if the the GM needs to create stats for the um, barkeeper um, in the in the in the tavern and and the various minions of the town that they are currently terrorising, that it's there and it's perfectly easy, easy to do and flexible to do if you want to fine tune things at the underlying GURPS level. So, what about Dungeon World? I think it takes a very different approach. Well, Dungeon World, as with Apocalypse World, starts with two basic definitions of how things work. The first is the character to sheet. There are character classes, there were in Apocalypse World, and each one can only ever have one player. There's only ever one fighter. There may be a, a paladin, but there's only ever one fighter as such. There's only ever one wizard player character. Right wizard. In the backgrounds, there are other people who may call themselves fighters and wizards, but in the realm of the player characters, there's only ever one each of the character classes at any, at any one time. 
and the player character sheets come in the form of little booklets which guide you through both creating the character and um, defining him out of the options that the uh, character class allows and um, allows you to keep track of the advancements. How he advances is in levels and by which as in standard D&D give you extra hit points and also extra moves. A uh, move is a, a thing that the character can do. Uh, there are some standard moves. Hack and slash is a, is a standard move. Act under peril is a standard move. And they roll on two dice. You add a modifier based on your, on your stats. And the cool mechanic is, if you roll ten or more, you succeed brilliantly and uh, without any penalty. You roll between nine and seven. You succeed, but there's going to be a cost. If you're hacking and slashing, the other guy probably gets wounded on you as well. Or you leap over the pit, but some of your equipment falls off. Or um, or you uh, manage to, to uh, stick your sword right through the other fella. Unfortunately, it's no longer in your hand. The, the, the GM is always allowed to, bring it to, to improvise narrative effects. And if you roll six or less, you've uh, failed miserably. You gain an experience point, mm. lucky you. Uh, but you're in trouble and the GM is allowed to screw your life up a little bit more. Everything happens at the player's initiatives. The NPCs, the monsters, they have their own moves, but they always happen in reaction to what the player characters uh, try. The, the idea is, and the core idea is, that the story you're telling is told in a conversation and the conversation should flow naturally and only go to the rules when there's doubt and when there is, um, when there's a chance you're going to screw up or succeed brilliantly. So, in terms of the ethos of the game, it's probably quite a lot more modern. It's a game where improvisation on the part of the players and on the part of of the GM is encouraged. The GM will probably start out with a set of introductory remarks, with a a mission briefing and some idea of where it's going to go. But he's going to let the world and the truth behind it be discovered. In the in, in the play, it's a big thing in the apocalypse the world line of things that you discover the world by playing in it. In apocalypse world, you don't know what caused the fall of civilization; you just know that you're there, and the players will discover by playing and the GM by making shit up what the real truth is out there. It will gradually build up. Yeah, one one of the. Um reasons I must admit I've tended to avoid heavily improvisational games is that sometimes I'm tired. Um, in, in a game that requires it, yeah. uh, a player who's not improvising well, or who, who's just you know, lay, laying back and letting the current take him a bit, is actually going to make the game worse for everybody. Uh, where, I, don't, I don't know that as That's been my experience anyway. Well, yeah. The, as, as that player, usually. <laughs> I don't think it's hostile to to the player who just wants to uh, to get in amongst it with his sword and and smite something evil and be magnificent at, at the end, end of the day. I think you'll have more fun if you're contributing and, bu and building up. Well, that, that's inevitable. Yeah. One of the things that we 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 meant to notice and we we didn't is that the lack of rules in D and D led to a great deal of of inspired 
setting creation and um, and play. The fact that you could go anywhere, do anything, that the world was so ill-defined meant that occasionally you got pieces of brilliant um, creation. I remember my very first dungeon, run by Dave Langford, um, had a ghostly icebreaker, I've told this story thousands of times, running around a ring of ice uh, in the first level of the, dun of the dungeon. And that was a brilliant image which has stayed with me, and, um, and I, I, I only wish I was that creative every, every week. I seem to remember somewhere deep in the crypts of Castle Greyhawk you can come out in, in a World War II bomber. <laughs> Briefly. But, uh, but though it was brilliant for that sort of thing, there also was no mechanical support for it. There were, you were having to make up rules and tack them on to the peculiar structure of the D&D &D if they were needed. I think one might argue that it actively encourages improvisation mm. because there there is no mechanical system for learning for building new rules. So yeah. you can make up any old thing that will fit on just as well. And the thing I'm going to say about, um, about um, Dungeon World is that it is designed to do that. Moves are easy easy to make up. You have um, a few basic stats, which gives you give you pluses and mi minuses. The monsters each are defined by their their moves and the things they can do back to the players, and and that creating a new move for new circumstances seems to me to be one of the easiest things about the game. And if you want to introduce the killer penguins at the South Pole, then and you hadn't planned on it before the game started then this is a game that will allow you to do that. I think what I'm getting at is that you, you've got a framework for that. You, you've got the system of moves. You already know roughly how, how well a move yeah. works and when it succeeds and when it doesn't succeed. You don't need to make up a new dice mechanic for it. You don't. Well, you, you can, but, uh, but, but often, very often you don't. I think because the, the core tropes of the, of the genre are built in. And as a, there is the built-in um, niche protection of you're the only thief you're the only druid, you're the only bard in the group. And that, I think, helps. I, I think it's a, the same sort of thing for uh, Gertz Dungeon Fantasy. If a player character wants to do something unexpected, chances are the archer is going to be rolled against a skill at some bonus yeah. or penalty. You, uh, you, don't, you don't have to make up an entirely new system for it. No, true. And that's one of the... Um, uh, that's one of the things... I'm, I'm, I may be doing a, a, a Dungeon Fantasy after my uh, inquest game run by somebody else for a change and I'm really looking forward to that. Okay, the, there clearly are, are these games that uh, do the job reasonably well. The, the last Dungeon Crawl I ran actually was just before Dungeon Fantasy came out, mm. um, but even uh, basic GURPS supports it reasonably well. Uh, so what, what does make a good dungeon crawl? What, 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 is, the, um, what is the essential characteristic of make, make, A, making the game sufficiently nostalgic, but also B, making it sufficiently fun? Let me mention battle maps and figures, <laughs> because I know we've moved away from them, and I, I don't know if you... I, don't, I doubt very much if Dungeon World would ever uh, drag, drag them out, but I still have a, a lot of figures. I, I, see, I may have done my bag permanent injury in the days of lead figures before I moved on to Cardboard Heroes. And I still have my battle map, and it does help focus the game and make it clear who's doing what and what's happening, and it makes the uh, mind clear. That's interesting. That's something something I got away from relatively early. Haven't really missed. Really? Um, I, running running a, 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 a GURPS game 
This is a game which cares about exactly how many hexes you are away from somebody. Um, yeah. It cares about um, what side of your enemy you're coming at. And I would have thought that would have, that would have helped. It probably would help, but I, I think but one can, one can make some simplifying assumptions. You know, this enemy is fighting one player character. He's going to stay facing towards that player character. If, yeah. if two of them gang up on him, one of them's going to be able to flank him or slap him in the back. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. But, but this leads to the syndrome of, which my players complain about, everybody's always three combat rounds away when they surprise us. If I don't surprise myself with what I'm setting up, my combats will start to look the same and feel the same, and the players won't have any fresh challenges. That's fair enough. I, I think the um, most memorable fight from that last dungeon I ran was um, in the dark against a troll. <laughs> in large part because the troll, having a very high health stat, was running out of hit points but not going unconscious. That's annoying about Gert. Yeah. It was quite annoying for the troll. He was in extreme pain <laughs> and couldn't lose consciousness. Had to keep fighting. Don't they, don't they get regenerations? Uh, yes, but the, the PCs were bashing him up faster than the regeneration was worth. Well. Oh dear, I feel sorry for the troll. Actually, I feel sorry for the players. They should have died. They they nearly did. Oh well. But okay, I I, I think one could fairly say every, everybody should have something to do, um, mm. especially in combat. But in general, in in the context of the game, that there shouldn't be anybody who's sitting around waiting waiting for their turn to happen. Waiting for their special thing to happen. Yeah, Dungeon World gets rid of the uh, the turn mechanic in favour of the, the yeah. flow of the conversation, and often, in practical terms, GURPS does too until it gets right down to the nitty gritty. There's a big thunk when you go to second by second combat time when you come out back into narrative time. Yeah, mm. L looking at the D and D roles, it's basically infantry, artillery, medics, and scouts. Yeah. So with Dungeon Dungeon Fantasy, you, you've got rather more classes. But they more or less fall into those categories. Yeah. Uh, the 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 only um, really strange one there is probably the bard, who's do, doing things to encourage other people rather than necessarily. Yeah, I never found the bard desperately convincing in any. I I can believe an adventurer can also pick up a loot, but a loot player who is also an adventurer sort of boggles my mind a little bit. As opposed to the loot player who tells everybody he's an adventurer. Mm. Yes, and I I I first met the bard in AD and D. I think it was where you had to gain a bunch of levels as a fighter and then become a first level thief and gain a bunch of levels there and then switch to something else and then you could finally start being a bard and yeah frankly but <laughs> by, by by that time they come in everybody else's 10th and 12th level and what's the point yeah. the difficulty of people with uh, coming into the game at significantly lower levels than the uh, yeah than the main players is always going to be one i don't know how one fixes it gurps Dungeon Packs and he fixes it easily because you can you can build uh, characters to any um, average uh, point level that your your campaign may have reached. I suspect that Dungeon World would encourage you to start from the bottom and work your way up. I know the DMs of, of the era who felt that everybody should do that. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a tenth level game; your character died. You're starting again with a first level fighter. Mm. Rollmaster tried to fix that by saying, well, yes, you should do that, but he gains experience vastly faster because he's hanging around with these much tougher types, right. and, they're, and they're killing big things, and if he survives, he'll do very well. Yeah. <laughs> so. then, then that rather leads into uh, game balance. Um, oh. cl classic D&D, high-level mages could do everything. 
um, particularly with with, with the um, add-on books which you probably didn't meet. Mm. But um, you know, there, there, there was a stone skin spell, so they can be armoured at least as well as the fighters. There, there were there are always lock picking spells, so they could pick lock better than the thieves. Yeah, D and D tended to disprove the uh, the old adage: it doesn't matter how powerful a wizard is, a knife between the shoulder blades will interrupt his concentration. This turns out not to be the case. Particularly as more and more spells got laid in, and particularly with a high-level wizard who's got insane numbers of low-level spells. Well, come on, can you can you say that GURPS, uh, not GURPS Dungeon Fantasy, but the, the main GURPS magic rules don't um, throw in some ludicrously powerful things for the later wizard? Move terrain, oh, indeed. where you can pick up a small county and move it to the next continent with enough enough energy sources. Yes, well, with enough energy sources, that, that that's part of it. Yeah. Um, and y- the advantage, or disadvantage, rather, of GURPS Wizards is that they're generally running, running off either their own fatigue or a power stone of which they can effectively carry one most of the time. Mm. They may have more back at home. but And that, that, that does provide something of a limit, because um, he, he may have one ability to pick locks better than the thief, but the thief can do it all day. Yeah. I find it difficult with really high-level characters. I find it difficult in all systems to find ways to make their lives difficult and interesting. I'm not seeing it from my player's point of view, but sometimes from my point of view as a GM, they go up against my big uh, monster and they don't even break into a sweat. And it worries me that I cannot... um, I I could use lessons in making their lives uh, more difficult when they get to the ludicrously competent level. There's, some of that may simply be that they've done a reasonable amount of advanced planning and tactics. Yeah, but I still want to be able to screw them over. I should be able to give them at least the illusion of, of having to pay a terrible price for their uh, for their triumphs. You could always steal ideas from Munchkin cards, you know, and its mate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I I don't think there are games where you focus on one character on one character class, on one. Group. All right. Let's 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 try and avoid the 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 D and Dism on one type of profession. But it depends what you what you try, you're trying to uh, you're trying to to simulate. I suppose what genre. In Swords and Sorcery, the Conan always kills the evil sorcerer, even though logically speaking, it should be the other way around. How did he get to be an ancient evil sorcerer in the first place? After all, mm, quite. Well, some some of it I think is options. If you've got a, a system where wizards have spells, yeah, they're going to have more different spells available as they go up in level. Yeah, and whatever the actual power of those spells, it means they have more things to think about, more things to do, more situations where they can be useful. Mm. One of the things that I like about Dungeon Fantasy, and I, I get the impression that Dungeon World does the same thing, is that it gives everybody more things to do. Yeah, uh, you, in in Dungeon World terms, it's it's the moves. Yeah. Um, Dungeon Fantasy. It, it's getting skills and uh, techniques up high enough that you can do things like deal weapon attacks or disarming people or... Poke them through the eye, eye, eye slits every single bloody time. Well, if you have a rapier, you might as well. Well, quite. It's my signature move. Yes, I know. <laughs> and that's why you put points into signature move. <laughs> One thing that occurs to me is that the reason you build up the world, you know, the complicated stuff back in civilization and the deep background that the players don't want to read is to deal with this um, when they get ludicrously powerful level by introducing things like gods 
got a wonderful play balance factors if they won't let the players get away with rewriting their universe. As long as nobody gives the gods stats, that's one error from AD&D that I don't think anybody else has really repeated. Yeah, I remember. You give the gods stats, it's just another monster book. Hey, we get asked next time I've been meaning to get even with her. <laughs> yes, I, I've met a group that was working its way through the gods book in alphabetical order. Well, I, I think I've got this dialogue right. I was passing many years ago through... Uh, by one of the other tables at Wiccan Games Group. And the GM said to the uh, players, well, last week you killed Lucifer. What do you want to do now? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is, it is a problem. The gods, there should be things that the players can't touch, but which can touch the players. The only game I've seen that really dealt with this explicitly was the later edition of Basic D&D, where they got up to the Immortal set and... The, the last of the five boxes, essentially was, right, your your character is a great hero and he is get, getting to the point where he is going to be seriously um, ascending to godhood. And le let us now do ad adventures and stor tell stories that are about that sort of process. Mm. And when, when he does so, yeah, that, that, that is the ultimate mm. goal for your character. Uh, yes, he's retired from, from actual playable status, yeah. but he's still out there in the world. Yeah, the... Uh... Well, the ultimate end of Hero Quest, uh, both as a concept and as, as a game, was to transcend and become as gods. I'll feed my reference there. Well, th thinking of stuff that happens back in town, the inspiration for all, all of this, of course, is very much the World West. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, there is the out of town where you can do pretty much anything you like. And yeah. there's, the, there's the back in town where you um, sell your gold and yeah. buy, buy your um, eggs and shovels. And there are interesting games to be run where um, out of town uh, habits move into town. And there is also, um, back in town is where you become the. Uh, this was a big thing in, in, in original DD, is when you become sufficiently high level, you become a lord. You get followers and, uh, and then you get your own castle and you start becoming. One of the movers and shakers. Yeah, I've, I've never actually met anybody who played that mm. phase of the game. It, it's very much there in AD&D in particular. And um, I, I've heard suggestions that th this was pretty much what, what happened in the early games, the, one, the ones that Gary was still running himself. Yeah. Um, and indeed that quite often a a player would go off on what was effectively a solo adventure, just his PC, other players mm. running his various henchmen and allies and things. But once they got to that level, it wasn't, wasn't really the party going down the dungeon anymore. No, quite. Whereas the players I knew were just saying, well, hey, you know, we, we like going down these dungeons, now, now we have ultra-zapping spells, so let's keep doing this. You know, I think there would be, a, there would be an interesting adventure in the really old... Um, in the really old adventurer who has done it all, seen it all, and knows how, how to survive. Oh dear, I'm reinventing Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> I was thinking of the Wild West gunslingers in in the Magnificent Seven, whose time is past, who are no longer needed, and who are going on the one last adventure that the farmers always win. Well, you, you've also got the whole Liberty Valance situation. Yeah. In, in, in order to be the Big tough defender, you render yourself unsuitable for being a civilized person, yeah. and, and vice versa. The the trouble is, you know the expression "murder hobo." Indeed. Yeah, that that something about 
going outside the the law creates the personality for the characters um, that they are allowed to do anything and can do anything and because on the front line it really is just a, just a matter of whether your sword is better than the other guy's sword yeah but is there going to be an inevitable tendency to break down the cohesion of the player character group the party is there always going to be a tendency of that sort of setup? to lead to backstabbing and treachery and all the bad things that you hear about, and interplayer as opposed to inter-character conflict around the table. I don't think it's inevitable because I've been in groups that didn't do it. But it's a temptation. Yeah, if what you're going for is acquiring the nicest stuff, well, probably the guys you're going down the dungeon with have some pretty neat stuff. Mm, true. They don't need it all, or indeed any of it. Why did they ever let the thief into the group? I never understood that. Because you've got to have a hobbit. I mean, halfling. You've got to have a burglar. Yes. We're, we're still having fun. I'm still having fun um, going down dungeons and um, holes in the ground and discovering the exciting stuff. I think it's better if I know why it's there and how it got there and um, the back history. I, the players don't have to know, but I think it's... It's nice for me to know. I think if the GM knows, then it's possible to be a bit more consistent about things. You know, you, you, you know it was dug by this particular sort of yeah. culture, so it will have symbols from this particular sort of culture lying around the place. They don't mean anything, but they, they're interesting colour. Yeah, I, there is um, a thing I've got which I've never actually used, uh, which is called How to Host a Dungeon, which <laughs> is basically a sort of mini-game in creating the history of these holes in the grounds and the various civilizations which have dug in this place and are left uh, uh, treasure-filled uh, and uh, monster-lined corridors down there. Uh, like, like the situation in Bristol a few years ago where a bit of road subsided into a cellar which turned out to be, I think, a Regency wine cellar and after that they found, below that they found something else when the floor of that caved in and another floor caved in and they, they were in a Roman something or other. <laughs> You can't get that lucky every week. <laughs> right, this close to months. There's an adventure for... There's one published adventure for uh, Goethe's Dungeon Fantasy, which I want to mention, which is called... Mirror of the Fire Demon, I believe. Yeah, and you haven't read it either, have you? No, I have not. Oh, right. Uh, I was hoping to get a recommendation here. I, I, I have the base books, but um, well, I, 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 have, I, I have, haven't actually run Dungeon Fantasy because I haven't run a dungeon since since it was published. Are you going to? Quite possibly. It, it's something that the groups I usually play with aren't particularly enthused by, but it's nice for a change of pace from time to time. Mm, yeah. And it's certainly nice for a change of pace for the, for the GM uh, com compared with a horribly complex game in a modern setting. Yeah. Uh, that's certainly one of the reasons it still appeals to me. I also have great great fun looking through very old issues of Dungeon Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about about Dungeon Fantasy, what, in whatever system you play, there's a lot of stuff out there for it, and a lot of it was quite well done. It, it is still, as as you're saying, by far the majority of role playing. Hmm. We who play other things as well may may not necessarily like it that way, but it's there, and one might as well enjoy it because it's still fun. A lot of it can be found second hand. Indeed. And for that matter, there's a, there's a fair bit of free material, some of which is very good indeed. Death. Death. All right. 
the, oh. this I think is something that's varied a lot from one, one uh, campaign and one DM to another. Yeah. If you play the keep on the borderlands strictly as written, you are going to be losing two, two or three PCs per fight. Ow. You're going to have one fight, the wizard casts his spell, and then you retreat back to the keep to, to heal up and reload, and you come back a few days later. It's really a matter of personal choice and style. The thing is, in the basic system, you unless you get the, the characters good enough, they're not going to face down the big bad at the end. But on the other hand, the, the, the threat of blood on the ground and a, a beloved player character dying does add a certain amount of charge to the game. I've, I've spoken in favour of austerity um, before. Um, now, D&D, um, at least in uh, more recent editions, tries to make every fight a balanced fight that you can just barely win. Hmm. The That's problem the problem to me is it, it's fine to do that, but once the players realise that it's happening, it takes tension out of it because they know, well, yes, we, we should be using one of one of our once-per-fight powers and three of our every-fight every powers and, and so on. And There's a, a quote in the famous Last Words collection that uh, keeps getting republished on, on the web, in which a player says something like, right, one Balrog, six players, uh, we should do an average of 3.5 hit points Per round, it should do this to us. Right, we're ready to rock and roll, and that's the famous last word. <laughs> I, there are various qualifiers. Dungeon World has bit built into it when you hit zero hit points, you get to face death, and on a good roll, death will let you come back. On an average roll, he'll let you come back on conditions, which <laughs> tend to be whimsical. And there is always the possibility of resurrection. I don't know. I feel that the the threat of your character dying adds something to to the game. But on the other hand, the rules of possibility of resurrection is out there, and you can always complicate their lives by the price. As I re recall, D and D resurrection it was available, but it was expensive, mm. and at least for low level characters, it wasn't really going to be affordable. I remember having a long discussion on one of the web forums about basic cost of resurrection insurance. <laughs> well, if, if you amortise your potential future earnings... Don't. Don't. <laughs> we did go into all that. What sort of percentage do you think that the clerics ought to ask? Well, 10 is traditional. Yeah, yeah, but there comes a point after sufficient resurrections. <laughs> it's sort of like student debt, but worse. Yeah, it, it does occur to me that what, what one wants is, is really to hit a happy medium with this. There's got to be the pot potential of death, mm. which probably in practice means there has to be occasional death. Yeah. But it, it, it needs to happen often enough that people remember it's there, but rarely enough that it doesn't become commonplace and it's, oh, well, I'll just roll up another fighter then. Yeah. I, I still remember the, uh, the death of a particularly well-loved uh, Moonquest character of mine, Layla the Barbarian. And she died, and I regret her death to this day because I enjoyed her very much. And she was going to go off and marry a prince shortly after this. Hmm. Uh, did, but did he know? Uh, uh, oh yes, the right. wooing, wooing was going on, and she had made her intentions perfectly plain. But uh, but her, her death was so appropriate that I I couldn't argue, because she said, "Well," she said to the mysterious veiled lady, "Why you might be anything underneath that veil. You might be a gorgon," and that killed her. <laughs> may every may every one of your player characters have as good and appropriate a death as Lane. Hmm. I think that 
That's a reasonable place to end. Okay. Thanks. We will be back next month. We don't know what we're talking about next month. Send us topics. Oh, we'll come up with something. We will. And um, write to us at podcast at tekeli.ly. Tekeli Lee. Is there something coming out of the corners? It's just the tentacles. Don't worry about it. We'll keep the drops out. Hmm.